Welcome to We Are Chafee Looking Upstream, a conversational podcast of humanness, community, and well-being rooted in Chafee County, Colorado. I'm Adam Williams. Today I'm talking with Katie Brown, the renowned rock climber that Climbing Magazine once named the best female climber of the millennium. And she's the author of Unraveled, a memoir of Katie's journey through darkness and back, starting in her childhood. I usually try to connect with each guest on this podcast on a personal and vulnerable level. It's amazing to me how often we can and do find relatable connections even with someone we've never met before, if we just take the time to listen and to learn how much we share in common. In this conversation with Katie, I think I found the most relatability with a guest of any of these conversations I've had on Looking Upstream, which I think is saying something. I've had a lot of meaningful conversations here with many incredible people. With Katie, I think I share more of myself, though. By the time we were done with this conversation, I definitely felt a vulnerability hangover. But I was able to do that because of the courage and grace and openness that Katie has shown in telling her story. It's in that vulnerability with each other, our willingness to go into those spaces, that we create opportunities at a deeper level. You know, we say here at We Are Chafee, share stories, make change. We share our stories and we get to see each other as fuller humans, setting our egos aside and owning our flaws and being open about the work that we're doing to try to be better people. As a community, when we see ourselves in each other's stories, we can make more thoughtful choices together. That's the point of this podcast and of the We Are Chafee Storytelling Initiative in all its forms. In this conversation, I talk with Katie about her growing up in isolation that was, at least in part, dictated by religious fervor in the household. She shares how she walked the confusing tightrope of that isolation, of the expectations of God and her parents. And the fact that she was a rock-climbing phenom of historic proportions, traveling the world, winning all kinds of big competitions, becoming a world champion as a teenager, all while suffering deeply and unseen in silence. That suffering included disordered eating, self-harm, and the mental, emotional, and physical tolls of years of struggling to be the world's best climber through all that turmoil, alone. Katie would end up leaving the sport, sort of disappearing. Many climbers and fans of climbing, I think, had little or no idea why, until Unraveled, Katie's memoir, was published a year ago. We get into some of those past stories, but we do also find out about what Katie's been doing in more recent years. Now here it is, a conversation with Katie Brown. Katie, welcome to Looking Upstream. I'm grateful that you're here, and I've been looking forward to the conversation that we're about to have. Thanks. Thanks for having me. There's an awful lot I want to talk to you about. So, uh, you know, I think I'll skip the chit-chat, small talk, that thing, and let's just dive in, okay? Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I hope that doesn't scare you. A little. (laughs) (laughs) You published a book, uh, Unraveled, around a year ago, Mm -hmm. and... It's an incredibly, well, first of all, it's beautifully written. It's a story well told. It really gives us this intimate, raw, and extremely vulnerable look inside your life story, particularly the earlier years. 
And I'm wondering, I think you refer to what Brene Brown calls the vulnerability hangover. Mm-hmm. I know what I feel when I'm vulnerable. I try to get there. I think it's an important place for connection with people, but it can be scary. Mm-hmm. And I wonder about that hangover for you throughout this past year and now a year removed. How is that process of exposing this piece of your life and yourself to the world gone for you? Um, I think it's been fine because it was, I think it was easier than I anticipated. And the most common response I got was people writing to tell me that the story had resonated with them and that they had found themselves in the story, which kind of, well, not kind of, it really validated my reasons for writing it. And so that all made it worth it. I think doing this now or a year later is harder than it was at the time because I was like in the mode and now I'm like out from it a little bit. So it's a little more like, okay, got to get back to that place. Um, So yeah, but at the time it was, it was fine. I had thought so much about it for so many years that it was, um, I was ready for it at the time. In that way, is it a relief then to have come through? I know it was a years long process to bring the book to publication. You've been living with the story inside yourself and I think hardly anyone knowing it and knowing your experience of it until you've shared it in this way. Was there relief once it was just out of your hands and you're waiting for it to come out and and then you start getting some of that positive feedback? Um, yeah, I was glad. Um, I went back and forth a million times about whether or not to do it and I kept uh, writing... Um, David Roberts, who was kind of like a mentor of mine through the process, um, telling him that I had changed my mind about writing it like 10 times, and he continually encouraged me to do it. Um, and so by the time it came out, um, yeah, I was glad that I had done it, and I didn't really care anymore if anyone read it. I was just glad that I had finished it and done it. What kinds of people were you hearing from? What I mean by that was when you're getting that feedback, were they just average readers who somehow found a way to reach you or was it people who had known you like climbing friends and partners and peers like Chris Sharma and Tommy Caldwell, Beth Rod and those people that a lot of people, if you're even a casual fan of climbing like I am, you know those names and and those are the people you were with. I guess I wonder what their reaction in particular would have been because they were around you at for years when they had no idea the story you were carrying and how that was affecting you? Um, I haven't really heard from any of them. It's mostly been people who found me via like social media, um, Facebook or, you know, wherever who've, um, who were more casual climbers or maybe didn't even know who I was before they stumbled on my book. And then, um, or it was recommended to them by someone because they had been through some similar struggles. And, um, so, 99% 99% of the people who've reached out have been people who have read it somewhat by happenstance and kind of saw their own story. Why did you ultimately decide to write Unraveled? Um, I'm not entirely sure. I 
was driving from Lyons to Boulder after dropping my daughter at school and um, listening to NPR, and I heard um, Dr. Gaudiani book on the um, radio talking about her clinic in Denver and her book called Sick Enough. And um, I, she was talking about things and like dots in my head just started connecting and making sense. And um, because I grew up in a world where um, I was told lots of stories that weren't necessarily true, um, I had a really hard time believing in my own reality and my own um, experience of how things had happened and what had happened and what had happened within my body and the reasons why things had happened. So I always kind of wondered if I was making things up or um, if my memories weren't real or um, it's just really confusing when you grow up in that kind of an environment. And so she started talking about symptoms and things that happened in the body and it all just started like really clicking for me and um I felt like you know the light bulb moment where it was like oh yes this all totally makes sense and what I experienced was real and um so I just from that had I just had this like really strong urge to want to tell my story from that moment so that was really the catalyst but it was a couple years of kind of diving into it a little more deeply to, before I decided and like a variety of reasons or, and yeah, whatnot. I think, you know, th this isn't a term that I knew when we were younger, but now the term gaslighting exists. And, and I think that's what I was seeing as I read the story and in relationship to your mother and in relationship to some of these things that you're, you're referring to here is where the other person it doesn't matter how clear you have it in your mind when you present it to them, they're going to make sure you walk away with total confusion, mm -hmm. self-blame. Mm -hmm. They're not going to take responsibility for their role in it and that sort of thing. And so after years of that, what I think is really remarkable is that you were journaling throughout the time uh, and how useful that is to your process now and to the fact that you could write a memoir maybe only because you had those journals does that sound right? Yeah. Because I wouldn't remember those things. If I hadn't had the journals, I wouldn't have been able to write it. Um, partly because um, I was obsessive about wanting what I wrote to be true. And um, so I had that to fall back on. And then also, like, it's a long time ago, so it's hard to remember. And I... I wanted to make sure I was as accurate as possible. And so because I come from a history of lying and um, these like elaborate fabricated stories that um, I, without them, I wouldn't have been able to nor had the confidence to write it. Yeah. About being as, as accurate and fair and honest and all those things as I think you were trying to be, mm -hmm. I have... I, I sometimes wondered in reading it if you were being hard on yourself in the name of that honesty 
which of course as a memoirist is going to establish some credibility. But let me soften that a little because I, I, I know how that can feel when people tell you you're hard on yourself. I get it from time to time from people. And for me and in, in my self-reflection over the years, what I have figured out is it's a defense mechanism that I have come up with that when you come from a background of being highly criticized, I'm going to be the first one to criticize myself. Everything I create and do in the world, I'm going to be the first one to tear myself down so that nobody else can lay claim to it and tell me something I don't already know. So I say that gently in case that affects you in a way to be told, oh, I think maybe you were hard on yourself. I was intentionally hard on myself because I wanted to um, take accountability for decisions that I made, especially as an adult when, you know, there might be reasons behind why you make certain decisions, but you still have to take responsibility for your own decisions, as, especially as an adult. Okay. And, um, and, you know, it was you who made that decision or um, whatnot, and you can't. You can say, you can look at the psychology behind what led to that, but you also need to like accept that you're the one that did those things. And so I wanted to take accountability for my own decision making. I can appreciate that. Um, but yes, I, I knew that I was hard on myself and that maybe there were things that I downplayed um, just because I wanted it to be like fair and not a book where I was like lashing out at the world you know I wanted to be like accountable for my own stuff as well that I brought to the table okay well in my reading of your book there there was a stretch especially early on I think where I might might get two or three pages and then my mind is taking me off into my own story mm-hmm. because of the relatability of things Sometimes that was rather uncomfortable. Sometimes it would be emotional. And one of those, I think, underpinning pieces of that was that you and I have in common in the story is religion in the household. Mm-hmm. Now, in your case, I, I do think there was more to that. It was a fundamental, more, I don't know if extreme is overstating it, but, um, and I wonder where if you know where that came from it is this energy in the house was it what the the fundamental religion or beliefs were of your mother your mother and father how that came to be such a core piece when really ultimately as we read your story and hear your story it also is the undoing of the relationships in the I'm not really sure where exactly it came from I think when there's personality disorders involved um there are things that people latch onto, and I think for my parent, it was religion, and now it might be something else. But there's always something that gets really heavily, the person gets really heavily invested in, and um, it happened to be religion, but it wasn't like a certain denomination or kind of religion. Um for example, there there are moments that were um, maybe based in reality, but then taken to this like fantastical place. Um, 
that my parent thought was real at the time. And um, I'm trying to think of an example. So once we crossed a border between Italy and France and our car and this story turned into like, oh, we were held up at gunpoint, which was clearly not real. But that was, but there were probably border guards who had guns. And so their stories um, that she would create had a basis in reality, but then became elaborate fictional stories that felt real to her. And so I think religion kind of turned into that for her, where it started as maybe like this basis in Christianity, but then taken to the like bazillionth degree in her head, if that makes sense. Where it became like um, obsessive, like constant Bible studies and, you know, like all, all these books and researching separate different words from the Bible and like going back to the root of the word and like creating stories and like, you know, God told me this and I have to be like chained to you to protect you because that's what God told me and like all these stories that are really unrealistic but in her head that i think at the time they felt like very real there's a lot of control that came about through this and you you just said to be chained to you that that's not a stretch it wasn't literal with chains yet you were sort of captive without a social life and then Going through these, I, I kept feeling, I think, more and more throughout your story, the contradictions in your world experience, that you were at a very young age, this phenomenal athlete, climber, known at least through that community and, and probably beyond around the world, winning international, significant international competitions, X Games multiple times, world championships, all this stuff. It's it's wild, the success and accomplishments and accolades. And yet, you couldn't enjoy that and you couldn't be present to it because there was this other piece. And that the contradiction was that if you did well, you were serving God and doing Him well. Or her or they. <laughs> you know, if... You had an off day like every athlete does, regardless of caliber. You had failed God. And I can't imagine the pressure uh, as you tried to walk that line. <laughs> people people would tell you, I mean, Lynn Hill, again, as a casual fan of climbing that I am, I know who she is. And for her, in her status to claim you as this best climber there's ever been, but your mom then is jealous of that, perhaps, or paranoid, or whatever the the mindset might have been, that doesn't want you to be allowed to be close to those people, so you couldn't have the social thing. Right. I don't even know where my question is in that, because as I read your book, I was feeling with you and for you on so many levels at different points, and some of them resonated much more closely to my experience than, I mean, I'm not a world champion climber, but... How did you walk that line? How did you feel that I'm so controlled, but I also am accomplishing these things in the world that why isn't that good enough? Um, I think it felt impossible and 
So I tried to figure out how to convey that in the story. And I had a hard time trying to figure out how to express exactly what it felt like. Um, because it did feel like an impossible situation where um, I was expected to be at a certain level and doing certain things in order to um, basically, like, it was through my winning that people would believe in God. Um, And so I was supposed to, like, obtain or not obtain, I was supposed to keep up that record of winning, but at the same time, I wasn't allowed to learn from anyone else or grow in any way. And so it just makes you feel like it's just impossible. You referred to in your story um, the examples of there was violence at home at times too. Mm-hmm. And you remember where the drawer was that your parents kept multiple paddles for paddling you, for spanking. Mm-hmm. That is a trigger for me because I remember exactly the shelf in the coat closet in our house where there was a wooden, it's essentially a board carved into a paddle, mm-hmm. maybe an inch thick or something. And that's been an ongoing, um, when it comes to mind, thing for me, especially now as a parent, and the psychology of all that, the terror of all that for me as a child. And my parents absolutely believed that if they said they were going to do something, they were going to do it as a punishment. So it didn't matter if it was going to be 30 minutes later till we got home and got to that paddle. It was going to happen because otherwise they might lose authority. I might lose respect for them. Right. Whereas the terror that I feel 30, 40 years later I, there's not respect. I don't respect that there were adults hovering over me, beating me with a one-inch wooden paddle on my butt as I shrieked and, and cried and tried to do anything to get them to stop. And it could be for inconsequential things. It was never because I tried to burn down the neighbor's house. Right. Right? It was for tiny things that words would have worked with me in a calm and, and loving way. And so when I read this in your story and how your parents, they would buy a child's toy the, the, the thin paddle with the string and a ball. Take off the string and ball and buy them in multiples. The psychology of that was especially triggering to me as I've tried to figure out the things with my parents. Because what they're saying is we're going to not only have this, but we're going to buy multiples in case one breaks. I always want to have one at the ready for hitting my child. And I maybe we're getting into territory here that this is about my catharsis as much as yours. <laughs> I told you before we started that I don't know that anybody's story of anybody I've talked with on this podcast or any podcast resonates in some ways as much um, with anybody else. Mm -hmm. Do you, does what I'm saying, I I don't want to put sentiments on on, on you about this, but you included it in your story. This was a memory you had. Mm -hmm. You remember that. So I imagine that it had weight with you, this experience. Yeah. Um, Everyone has their own opinion about spanking, but I think it's wrong. <laughs> and um, I think it's also partly generational. In our generation, our, our parents' generation, it was, I think, standard, pretty standard. Um, but the problem is when 
um, I think in a lot of, I, I don't know, in my situation, I think it was past when when it becomes something that's just done out of sheer rage it's not it's not really just a punishment anymore yeah um and so i think that part of the problem in our house was that you it was really unpredictable so it was hard to know what was right and what was wrong and what you might get punished for because so you're always trying to guess how to be as good as possible because the rules don't always make sense you know if you're told to wash the dishes and you forget to also wipe down the counter you might get spanked for that because you didn't know as a seven-year-old that washing the dishes also included wiping down the counter and so you'd never really so you I think in our house, you could either try and be as good as possible, which is what I tried to do, or you could be, um, or you could rebel, which is what my brother did, and just not care anymore. So there's no other way to really deal with it because you don't, you're just a kid and you don't know how to guess what might be wrong or right when it's always changing and it's hard to, hard to tell. Somewhere in the book, you say you were always on alert your mom's anger or how she might feel. Mm-hmm. And in recent years, I've come to this term of people pleasing, of hypervigilance, how we're always watching out for that because we don't really know. We're always walking on eggshells. We don't know what's going to set it off or what's going to um, catch us, you know, that punishment. And I think that that ends up being a lifelong thing. Like I said, it's only been recent years that I have come to those those terms and started to learn, wait a second, it's okay for me to draw boundaries with people. It's okay to not have to always make everybody happy and be watching out for now my wife's, you know, emotions or whatever. You know, she can tell me everything's fine, but if I, you know, what I'm learning to do is just say, okay, then then that's what it is. I don't have to keep watching for the most minute expression changes to see what I've done wrong. Yeah. And what I need to do to make it right. And I think there's also the the aspect of I don't know about for you, but I always felt like uh, if I'm just a little bit nicer, a little bit better, I'll do this, you know, in just the perfect way, I'll find the formula and then all this will be done. Like I'll know how to have been the perfect son or the perfect employer, the perfect whatever for whoever it was I was trying to, to manage that with. And it's an impossible place to be. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you about the journals again, because it was so critical to what you did with this book and what you're able to share now. And I imagine ultimately for you to straighten out, maybe as importantly as anything here, for you to be able to straighten out in your own mind, those stories that you otherwise would have gone on with your life, just never knowing what was true, what wasn't, what really happened. You might have remembered that wrong. Mm -hmm. And you might've kept going in that cycle to some extent. But, Another thing in my my experience here was that that journaling, your mom would read them and then use it against you. My mom convinced me at 14 years old, she persuaded me to start a journal. I don't think it lasted a month because she could not help herself from reading my journals and using it against me. But here's the difference. I stopped journaling. She'd broken trust. I'm not going to do this anymore because clearly this wasn't about me. It was about her. She wanted 
access to my thoughts mm-hmm. and didn't know how to have conversations with me on an honest level to, to get there. So when she'd used it against me, I was done. But you kept going. Why? Why? Why would you go ahead and 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 be willing to keep journaling for years knowing that she was violating that trust and privacy? Um, I don't know. I always liked writing, even when I was little. You know, we were told to, like, write a short story, and I'd write, like, a 40-page <laughs> book, um, even in, like, the seventh grade. So I always liked writing, and um, I basically stopped talking as a teenager um anyone that knew me at the time I think that's the most the thing they will most would most remember about me is that I did not talk just at all um in interviews I I have a bunch of VHS tapes that I found in my dad's attic and I would watch them and in interviews a reporter would ask me a question and I wouldn't answer for like a minute and then my answer would be so quiet that you can't even hear that response and it would be like one or two words. So I just, I stopped talking and so writing was just someone for me to talk to because you can't just be silent like all the time and so I would temper what I wrote because I knew there was a chance that she might read it or I would allude to things but not say them all the way Um, or I would write things that I knew that she would like in my journal. Um, And then as I got older, I found ways to, you know, protect them more so that she wouldn't be able to read them or wouldn't be able to find them kind of thing. So, As you got older and you got out on your own, you're of age to be an adult, but then don't really have the skills, didn't have the modeling for you and the encouragement and you weren't led to know how mm-hmm. this is, this is how you, you live an adult life. Mm-hmm. So naturally there are challenges and struggles plus everything going on inside of you. As you write about in your, in your, there were plenty of things and decisions that in that whether you're being hard on yourself or just fair and honest, mm-hmm. the responsibility you're taking is, yeah, okay, I made some mistakes. I did some some things along the way for for some years. First of all, I maybe this is just because again, coming where I am from where I am, I just sort of figure we all do. I think we spend a lot of our twenties this way, but maybe that's based on our experiences um, that are rough, and we're trying to figure out how to deal with them. In my case. Um, I did some of the things you did. I also turned especially toward alcohol for many years. But you don't write about that in, in your book, you know, alcohol or drugs being part of that, which to me, because that seems like such an obvious, I'm going to go drown and numb myself in this situation. Um, but you didn't, you didn't do that. And I wonder if there was a conscious choice or if it was about climbing and that you were still trying to have contact with that piece of you. Um, drugs for me were too scary because I didn't like feeling out of control. Um, so that was out. (laughs) Um, and drinking, I enjoyed drinking, but it never felt like 
I mean, I loved like going to a nightclub and drinking and going dancing. I was, I loved that, but um, it never felt like uh, something that I was like super drawn to outside of social drinking, I guess. Um, I mean, I think I had other unhealthy behaviors that were detrimental to my, I, I think I tended to punish my body more than, um, more, more than like resorting to substances, if that makes sense. It does. And it's a good. harmful behaviors were more directed at my like personal body. Okay. And, and it's a good, um, lead in, I guess, to, to mention the eating disorders mention you said the word control and you know, how you've described it is that that was a, in a world and in a life where you felt like you had so little control, that was a way of finding some kind of control for yourself. And that's also punishment of body and, and wellness all around. Um, can, can you talk about some of that experience and, and then also how you, in a healthy way, managed to be able to come through that? Yeah, so um, I remember when I was a teenager, I felt like uh, it just made me feel like really powerful. Like I almost wanted to like laugh in my mom's face because I felt so powerful uh, when she couldn't force me to, that was like one thing that's like she couldn't forced me to do or couldn't control so it gave me like a it was like uh, I was winning in that situation because there was a lot of like underlying competition and jealousy in our relationship Um, and so when I was skinnier and when I had more control over how much I ate or didn't eat I felt um, like I was winning against her because most of the time I felt like I was losing <laughs> and so um when I had control over that I was I had the upper hand and so it made me feel really powerful um and sorry um but then it started to really cause a lot of troubles in my health and well-being and my ability to climb and um and then that's when a lot of the denial that I had an eating disorder started and the stories that she created around what I did have um that I knew weren't real but I couldn't I couldn't I don't know like you know she said on She had like reporters on ESPN say that I had Crohn's disease, but I didn't have Crohn's disease. And I knew that, but I wasn't strong enough to like tell my truth at the time. So, um. How old are we saying you are at that time? I was uh, like 16, 17 at the time. I don't think you could be expected to overpower what had been this force in your life for all these years and correct that. And with a, a national audience knowing what you wrote, what you wrote privately in your journals, was enough to trigger what I'm—I am an armchair psychologize this. What I imagine 
were the traumas and things within your mom that she was trying to deal with or didn't know how to deal with the shame and the insecurity and the things that she might have been feeling that then get projected onto how she's handling you. <laughs> if she couldn't take her responsibility in what you are honestly saying in your journals, how could you possibly, as a, as a young teen, with the relationship and being cut off from the world the way you were, say on ESPN, no, 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 she's, she's um, not telling this right, and it's to protect herself because she doesn't want the responsibility of, of her involvement in my experiencing anorexia. Yeah, but I also think that the medical community and... Um, Absolutely. Also, I kind of wanted to bring that to light in the book as well, that um, all of my issues were categorically dismissed because I was a successful white female. And Stop. the fact that I was profoundly emaciated was largely ignored um, by multiple doctors. Um, so I think any of them could have decided to maybe look beyond whatever my mom was telling them and be an advocate for a young person, but chose not to. I think they had the responsibility to maybe, maybe legally as well. Right. And, and it almost feels like malpractice to me that you saw multiple and never did that come up yeah. and never did they step in to intervene and say, we got it, mom. There's something we really need to look at here. I would hope that in recent years, you know, eating disorders and whatnot are more, doctors are more aware of them and can maybe help start that conversation instead of just ignoring it and trying to look for other reasons why things might be going wonky in someone's body. Do you think things were different at that time? If we're saying uh, 20, 25, whatever years ago, mm -hmm. that maybe the the general awareness around eating disorders and um, maybe how it would have been handled by parents and by medical professionals would it have just been different then so maybe if maybe I'm being too harsh in a way to say oh my god that was malpractice I mean I'm feeling defensive for you in that I'm feeling shock maybe as a parent in that whatever um, have things just come around more now to where we're more aware. I think so. I think it's different than it was. And I'm sure there's probably progress to be made still, but I think it's a lot different than it was in the 90s. Good. Yeah, I think you mentioned how it was affecting your your athletic capabilities and that as the athlete of whatever level I am and have been throughout my life, that's the part I was especially thinking of was, wow, these things you're accomplishing, best in the world, time and again, and you're dealing with these things that are physical, mental, emotional, that are, are crises that are very significant. Yes, I think I got to a point where it no longer felt, it no longer made me feel powerful. Um, it just felt like I was dying. And um, so I, then when things started going wrong with my health, it was affecting my climbing. And there was a lot of, physical pain that I started to experience, like constant pain. And so at that point, I think I kind of realized that no one was going to help me and I wanted to be strong for climbing. And so um, I just kind of, you know, the 
the desire to feel better started to outweigh the desire to not eat. And so I started trying to figure out how to get better just on my own because I was in so much pain. I wanted to feel better more than I wanted to be, to have like this control over this thing. Would you mind reading the passage that I've marked here? It, to me, illustrates um, so much the contradiction that you were in and that you're describing um, to this point in the conversation physical pain, emotional pain, the anguish and, and how to how do I balance being this world champion with also being the daughter of my mother? <laughs> Late that night with a pillow stuffed under my abdomen to relieve some of the pain and distension, I wrote about the impossible tightrope I had to walk. Be friendly and outgoing and talkative or else no one will like me, but not too much or else people will talk and my mom will feel abandoned. Be in the world, but not of it. Stay wary of anyone who only wanted things from me, but still perform well and show Christ through my success. Succeed, but without anyone's help or tutelage. Be happy. Don't be depressed. Accept every obstacle that God threw in my path with grace and joy without a single selfish teenage bone in my body. Most of all, be my mom's best friend and confidant while telling reporters that she was my coach and teacher. I wrote about how I couldn't wait to turn 18 and leave home. I wrote imaginary tales about what my life would be like when I was free, finding escape in the stories I wrote. It seemed so peaceful compared to my present life, which felt like constant, exhausting effort. Chris and I had also been talking about climbing big walls, but I knew in my heart that my mom would never let that happen while I was still with her. Sometimes I thought, maybe if I starve myself enough... If I get just sick enough, I would have to go stay in the hospital, and then someone would notice and help. Or maybe I could take just enough painkillers <clears throat> not to die exactly, but to overdose so that I'd be taken to the hospital. And then I'd get to rest. After I had to turn down the trip to Yosemite, I sat down... It's okay. We can stop there. At the family computer to try and find out exactly how many painkillers need to take for that to happen. I read that at least twice yesterday and making sure whether I wanted to ask you to read it. Thank you for reading it. And I'm sorry for taking you into a place that is still so emotional. I got choked up by the time I hit the last line each time I read it yesterday. Part of that was feeling for you. Part of that in a general way. I think feeling the pain. And as we're talking about here, the relatability. And as I imagine the emotion that anybody who just listened to that, anybody who reads your book, and how they connect that to their own life. I was enough of an adult at some point married and with children with enough pain at points in my life and feeling so stuck and feeling like I couldn't tell anybody, feeling like I couldn't get help. I was absolutely trapped, but I would go to bed at night wishing not to wake up. And I was only, I was in my 30s. 
So I was old enough to be in my 30s, but I was also only in my 30s. Mm-hmm. Things like that come to mind for me as I'm also empathizing with your pain in that. And again, I think that passage illustrates so well the contradiction, that tightrope you describe of what you're trying to walk in your life at that time. Climbing Magazine in 1999 named you the best female climber of the millennium. Mm-hmm. I'm reminding people of these accolades you had coming to you, being put out into media, you were at some point here named in, in Rolling Stone Magazine's Sport Hall of Fame. I mean, I, I don't even know the whole list. It's an astounding list of accolades. And these are the things you were feeling and the things going through your mind and through your body. I just want people to understand that. I want people to read your book as well, because there's a lot more a lot more to this story, but I want them to know enough from this conversation who they're getting to hear right now. So thank you for reading that. Speaking of that, that uh, best female climber of the millennium, you have said that those sorts of things, those accolades did not register in your mind at the time because you were so dissociated from the experience. I wonder if you're able to look back now, these years later, this amount of remove from the circumstances you've sort of in a sense purged your your story and some amount of your pain as part of the process of healing through your memoir are you able to look back at who that person was and feel any pride and joy in knowing that that was you even though you didn't necessarily feel present to it at the time yes i mean at the time um i didn't feel like I deserved those things and I um always felt like there was some reason or excuse like for why um they would happen or some reason that was outside of myself um rather than because my personal value was so low that it couldn't possibly have come from me so um so yes and also it's hard not to feel a sense of loss at the like what could have been I didn't want to put this on you, but I guess I've had that thought around the health aspect. You were in the physical, mental, and emotional state of health that you were in for the years that you are still winning these tremendous events Mm -hmm. against competitors that are very worthy. And what what might have been had you been at a healthy, well-supported sort of place. I also think it's probably not helpful to look back at things in that way. No. And that you, if that's the case, then you're not all of these things that we're sitting here getting to share now. Better and worse, right? Like we have the pain. I, I don't know your, your thoughts on, on that. Um, I think I just try not to dwell on the loss because then it feels like too much. So... I try and just be like thankful for what I did have or do. I think that's a good way to go. And I think if we look at it this way, not that I would ever want you or anyone to have to go through some of the pains that you have, but through your experiences, because you have this positive, strong, resilient look and moving forward in life, you have something like this. 
you have the capacity to talk like this right now about experiences and whether that's related to the pains of of the family relationships if it has to do with eating disorders and and then also of course there's the getting healthy and all the things that have come since and and where you've gone with your life since so i mean it, it's your whole it's it's all of who you are and can't take away the pain and just be the shiny rainbow Unfortunately, maybe, but it's also, if we look at the fortunate, then we have that. Yeah. That's what we're sharing, helping other people. Like, like the feedback that you, you said you got, you know, 99% of it came from people who, you know, were maybe random strangers who encountered your book that that's good. You're doing in the world because of being able to take that pain and make something of it. You are now a mom. Mm -hmm. You're married. You have a daughter yourself. She is the age of my younger son. Um, I wonder about that experience for you. I wonder about how you take the experience that you had as a daughter, just like I do as a son, looking at the parenting. You know, when I, when I was getting those paddlings for things that did not matter, even as a kid, I thought, how, how can you not see the hypocrisy? You tell me, don't hit. Don't go get in fights at school or you'll be in big trouble at home. But then I misstep, you know, as, as a child will, um, getting a little sarcastic or whatever the thing might have been that could have just taken a few kind words to resolve. And instead, I'm, I'm getting hit up the backside with a board. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm clearly not going to do that to my son. <laughs> I use more compassionate loving, patient conversation with them. And we're honest with each other. And that's how I go about parenting because I learned from my experience as a child, that's not what parenting should be to me. So for you with a daughter and all the experience that you have, what I imagine it, it's a challenge at times like it is for me. Yeah, I think it's just um, my biggest thing with parenting is just being scared because I don't want to ever hurt her yeah i think that's what i mean is what in those moments where i might catch that i might be acting like one of my parents that is and that sends me down something you know uh but the difference is i will go i'll go talk to my son yeah i will go make it right i'll go show them what a, a good apology looks like and that there's strength in my having made a mistake and, and owning up to it and all the things that never would have come my way. Yeah. I'm not going to let my ego get in the way of, of being a better parent. Yeah. Um, I think I just always, I mean, I, th- I think I get a million things wrong every day with parenting, but I think I just always try and let her know that she's just right, just the way she is, and that she can always talk to me. And... Even if she's mad at me, I won't be mad if, you know, she can always tell me. So she feels really comfortable telling us, you know, whatever. I'll tell my sons, if, are you mad at me right now? Okay. Do you feel like calling me a name right now? You feel like cussing at me right now? Go for it. And I think that's enough to dissolve it right there because they never do. They might say, yeah, I'm mad. But they don't take the other <laughs> doors that I show them, which I think is kind of funny. 
But I want them to be able to express that, sure, in ways that I, I couldn't and, and I don't think you could. I want to ask you about um, some more recent things then in your life. You and your husband have built a house using hemp as a, as a primary material. You know, this podcast ostensibly is about health and housing. It's supported by uh, Chibi County Public Health, supported by Chibi Housing Authority. All the things that we talk about that are much more personal um, are kind of, you know, with the undercurrent of what are the things that make us feel healthy and, and happy in life. And housing is one of those things, especially living in an area where housing can be so expensive and, and it's a challenge to live in, in the beautiful central Colorado mountains like we do. So I'm curious about this experience of you guys building this house and maybe why you chose uh, in a rural area, I think outside Salida, right? Yeah, we're in Howard. Okay. What is, what has that experience been for you? Was that some, was it a lifelong dream? Was it a matter of solving a problem because you couldn't find what you needed or wanted elsewhere? Um, I think we moved kind of from the Boulder area, kind of right in the middle of COVID. Um, and I think that the initial impetus was just wanting to have, I don't know, I have anxiety. And so sometimes I worry about what the earth is going to look like for my daughter. And so I think wanting to pass, have something to pass on to her where she could homestead and grow her own food and like all these things, if, if need be, I wanted to have that to be available for her. And so we set about looking for a piece of property and um, it would have been nice to be closer to town, but where we ended up, there were just a lot less rules and um, and it was more affordable. And so, um, and then we wanted to build a house that was healthy and good for the environment and hemp is actually carbon negative. So pulls CO2 out of the atmosphere for like, I don't know, my husband would know more, but several, quite a few years after it's built. It's made out of the waste byproduct of the plant that's, you know, the hemp that's used for fiber, you know, clothing and tinctures and whatever. Um, so it's made out of a, a waste byproduct. So it's just kind of doing good for the environment as opposed to contributing to what's happening with our earth. <laughs> and... I don't know, maybe that was like more in the forefront of my brain because we were in the middle of a pandemic and it was a little like <laughs> catastrophic thinking, which I tend <laughs> to do. Um, but at the same time, I think it was good and I want to be able to pass that on to my daughter. So you've written this memoir, obviously. We've, I think, made that clear, <laughs> unraveled. You had written a book or two before that related to climbing and those things. So you have a lot of writing history is what I'm getting at. I'm wondering how you knew you were a writer, how you came to that in a professional sense. You know, we've talked about the journaling. I mean, you had an interest in writing and I know that you read a lot, but in terms of kind of entry to writing as a, as a professional opportunity, was that something you'd ever imagined, thought of, dreamt? Yeah. Even when I was little, I wanted to be a writer. Um, I lived in my imagination. Um, like as a lot of people who grow up in unstable environments can relate to you, sometimes you live by escaping into your imagination. And so I always um, had stories going and imaginary play going. And um, 
and I liked I liked writing my stories and in school I liked writing my stories um, a lot of them were fiction when I was little um and yeah I just always I was a crazy bookworm so yeah are you still no, I don't really have time to sit and read a book, but I do listen to a lot of audiobooks like because I drive a lot for work. So, okay, in that work, I, I was going to lead to that. Do you want to just talk about what that is? Sure. So, uh, primarily, I do hair and makeup for weddings. Um, that's my main job, and then um, I do lots of other odd jobs. Um, so, I'll help. I'll do some like organizing work or. Um, my husband's building a hemp house and so I'm helping with the interior design for that and I do a lot of writing uh, like freelance writing work as well so I'm wondering about the the makeup artist hair part of things mm-hmm. probably a couple of, of reasons here one is it if we if we connect that to some of your experiences one as a girl you weren't I assume we're not allowed to wear makeup you weren't allowed to go have friends and boyfriends and the whole teen thing. Okay. So now you're bringing that sort of style and beauty to rides, you know, on, on a really big day in their lives, which actually um, is captured in the photography that they're going to have forever. I mean, this is, this is a piece of their lives forever. Mm -hmm. And I wonder about how the balance of those things for you given that you didn't see yourself as beautiful on some level, right? As you're going through anorexia and you felt like you were unworthy in all kinds of ways, there's, again, this might be just me diving into some sort of deep corner of thought that, you know, I don't want to put on you, but I wonder if there is some sort of, you know, connection that you maybe have considered about what it means for you to be able to bring that beauty to others on such a special day when really at some point it was such a foreign and impossible Thing for you um well I've always been very creative like I always have to be like creating something whether it's like a craft or you know I got really into making jewelry you know I'm always like needing to make something um and when and and then I was also I was always very girly when I was little which was not good in our house um in our house you are athletic or you are nothing and athletic not just like I play on the soccer team athletic like adventure sports athletic so um being athletic is kind of what gave you value in our house and I was not the athletic kid before I started climbing, I was, um, I was very girly and I didn't, I didn't like bugs. And so I, <laughs> I didn't want to go climbing and, um, I wanted to have, you know, cute outfits and things like this. And so that was always kind of a core part of my personality, um, And then when I was a climber, I also kind of enjoyed the dichotomy of being an athlete and girly at the same time and trying to figure out how to navigate that. And so I always wore like big jewelry, even though I was, you know, climbing or my outfits matched, even though it was like 
climbing, you know, whatever. Um, so that was always a part of my personality um, that I tried to hold on to, even though it wasn't like celebrated or even allowed all the time. Um, so when I, when my daughter was born, I wanted to make, I wanted to make my own money. I didn't want to just be at home with the baby. I've always been, I've always needed that. Like, I think because of how I grew up, I need that, I need that independence. Um, so I knew nothing about makeup and I just started like buying things at Target and playing with them and watching YouTube videos and trying to figure out how people used it because I had no idea. I had never used it before. Um, how old were you then? I was 30 when I had my daughter. So, um, and then I knew that I wanted to somehow figure out how to make money doing it and I, I'm not sure how I stumbled on weddings, but... Um, I ended up going to the Aveda school in Denver and telling them that I wanted to do hair and makeup for weddings. And um, it was more practical at the time because it was something I could do on the weekend. So we could like, you know, theoretically swap off childcare and I could make my own schedule. And um, so it started out more practical. It wasn't so much like and strong desire to make other people feel beautiful. Um, I don't know that maybe that's bad, but it started out just as like something I enjoyed that felt practical for my life, if that makes sense. It does. Um, but uh, yeah, I think it's sometimes I think it's ironic that I work in weddings and I watch all these like mother daughter or father daughter relationships and. That can be challenging at times, but um, I think most brides have told me that I'm a pretty calming influence, and so I think I enjoy just bringing that there and and maybe being, you know, if they, because you grow up walking on eggshells, you can sense the emotions of people, and so um, I like to try and just you know, if, if I can tell that they're feeling some way and everybody's maybe running around crazy and um, not tuning in to how they are emotionally, I try and, like, be that person. Even if I'm, like, behind them doing their hair, just being checking in and being like, how you doing, you know? <laughs> yeah. So. You, you describe in the book sensitivities that also resonated with me, and, and that could be physical. It could be physical sensitivities to how clothes are fitting or to noises. That's my experience as well. And I think that when you are a person who has those sensitivities of all kinds, including emotional, that empathy, and maybe it is connected to some of what our experience has been, mm -hmm. but to have that empathy and care, which is different than the hypervigilance of looking out and fearing what the expression is, it's we're now maybe attuned in a way yeah. to be able to tend to some of those needs that people have that others are overlooking. Yeah. So I think that's a special a special thing that you're you're giving your brides there as well and you have been doing this for many years so it clearly it went from practical maybe to at least you deciding well i'm going to keep doing it so is there some piece of that that is a sense of creativity or joy or mm -hmm. 
you know, what, whatever you've come to with it now and, and why you continue. Yeah. I mean, I like, I enjoy the creativity of it and, um, I'm a behind the scenes person. I like to see, you know, to like help put them together on their day and then see the end result. And I get joy out of that more so than if like I was the person in front of the camera, that's just, as it turns out, not my, not my vibe. (laughs) So I like, I enjoy being, being able to stand back and um, see them like feeling good in front of the camera. And I'm behind the scenes knowing that I've like contributed to that. Yeah. So I enjoy being the behind the scenes person. (laughs) Have you had any bride say, I know who you are from climbing or I know who you are from your memoir or any of those, have they connected dots? No, sometimes it'll come up and they'll be like, oh, that's really weird how did you start doing weddings if you were a professional rock climber (laughs) but no no nobody's like known beforehand that's interesting it's and and i guess it it factors into some thoughts i've had about how it seems like you've lived maybe are living a second life have lived two lives Mm -hmm. um but there are philosophical things around the idea that we live, all of us live two lives. You know, there's the first one that forms us and then there's the second one that is maybe more spiritual, but it's where we take on who we really are and learn who we really are and, and carry that forward in the world. And um, so however we get to that second life, it seems like that's where you are and, and you're in just this distinct phase from where you were before. Yeah. And I mean, I'm sure there'll be others just like everyone. Yeah. It's an ongoing evolution, isn't it? Katie, I appreciate your coming in here and sharing, sharing so much more that is, is vulnerable and open. And again, I want people to go read your book, Unraveled. And, you know, if they've listened to this point <laughs> and listened through all the things I shared from my side as well, which again, I thank you for allowing me to do because I think there was an opportunity here for more connection and understanding in a more direct and deeper way than, than sometimes can happen in conversation. So I, I appreciate your allowing me to get someone that out with you yeah but i do encourage people to read the book and, and really learn much more what your experience has been and and i think they'll feel this conversation in an even richer way yeah thank you thanks for listening to the we are chafee looking upstream podcast if our conversation here today sparks curiosity for you You can learn more in this episode's show notes at wearechafee.org. If you have comments or know someone in Chafee County, Colorado, who I should consider talking with on the podcast, you can email us at info at wearechafee.org. We invite you to rate and review the We Are Chafee Looking Upstream podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you use with that functionality. We also invite you to tell others about the Looking Upstream podcast. Help us to keep growing community and connection through conversation. Once again, I'm Adam Williams, host, producer, and photographer. John Prey is engineer and producer. Thank you to Cahan 106.9 FM, our community radio partner in Salida, Colorado, to Heather Gorby for graphic and web design, to Andrea Carlstrom, director of Chafee County Public Health and Environment, and to Lisa Martin, community advocacy coordinator for the We Are Chafee Storytelling Initiative. The We Are Chafee Looking Upstream podcast is a collaboration with the Chafee County Department of Public Health and the Chafee Housing Authority and it's supported by the Colorado Public Health and Environment Office of Health Disparities. 
You can learn more about the Looking Upstream podcast and related storytelling initiatives at wearechafee.org and on Instagram and Facebook at wearechafee. Lastly, until the next episode, as we say here at We Are Chafee, share stories, make change.